Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 15. A House of the Most Brittle Glass. In which the self-promotion of CPA Chief Executive Alex Malley wins him the ultimate demotion. The content marketing bubble blows up in the face of media monitor Icentia, and outdoor advertising gets bigger and bigger, giving James Warburton a leg up. It takes just one person to blurt out that the emperor has no clothes. In this case, the Australian Financial Review's Joe Aston is the little boy in the Hans Christian Andersen folktale. Aston is the Australian Financial Review's once-in-a-generation, bite-the-hand-that-feeds, risk-taking, trouble-making, defamation-baiting, gleefully caustic, rear-window diarist. And today, he's taken aim at something that's appeared on his own newspaper's pages. Alex Malley is CEO of CPA, the industry body for certified practising accountants, and fancies himself as something of a business and leadership expert. A few days ago, he'd contributed an opinion column to the Australian Financial Review, criticising lack of accountability from the board of Woolworths, pontificating. I've been a CEO working to a board of directors for long enough to understand accountability, both the principle and what it means in practice. Aston goes in studs up, describing Malley as Australia's most accomplished self-promoter, adding, I've been a business columnist for long enough to understand a modest outbreak of self-delusion. He continues, Malley has never been the CEO of a $30.5 billion public company with 200,000 employees and $42 billion in annual revenue. His most lofty gig yet is as current head of a run-of-the-mill professional membership organisation. And then Aston raises a point that must have been at the back of the mind of anybody walking through an airport terminal in recent months. No doubt he has explained to his board of directors how their members' interests are being served by their subscription money being spent plastering their CEO all over massive airport billboards 
and advertising his book and paying the Nine Network to air his own talk show where he interviews celebrities on daytime television, for which they front an approximate $35,000 of advertising per episode for the privilege, even before they fund production costs. Billboards alone are costing CPA Australia at least $170,000 per month. Aston concludes, When it comes to leaders putting shareholders or members' interests before their own, one might argue that Malley has built himself a house of the most brittle glass. Suddenly, the business community realises that the emperor of content marketing is stark, bollock, naked. Alex is back. Like Warren Buffett said, when the tide goes out, you discover who's been swimming naked. And as the decade wore on, it became easier to tell which media fads were bubbles and which were real trends. Content marketing turned out to have more than its fair share of sharks. By contrast, the digitisation of outdoor advertising created real value making out-of-home ad companies attractive investments. First, to content marketing. For nearly a decade, Alex Malley had it good. Since becoming president, then chief executive of CPA Australia, he demonstrated that money can buy you fame. It was the organisation's money and his fame. Whether it was a sound marketing strategy for his organisation was a different question, though. How would having CPA Australia's boss on television generate more members in the short term or more young people choosing accounting as a career in the long term? The organisation's $30 million marketing budget was good for the media companies, though. Nine did particularly well out of it. They gave him weekend airtime to present three series of The Bottom Line, then in conversation with Alex Malley, because CPA committed to buying advertising against the show. Guests would include everyone from Ricky Ponting to the Fonz actor, Henry Winkler. It later emerged that CPA spent $17 million on TV advertising over three years. And CPA even helped boost Nine's audience numbers slightly. Members were able to claim the half hour spent watching Mally's shows as time towards their annual obligatory 20 hours of continuing professional development. Fairfax did okay too. Alex's back ads appeared on the front page of the Australian Financial Review to promote the new season of the show. And outdoor advertising companies in Australia and even in New York's Times Square benefited via billboards to promote Mally's Naked CEO career advice book. The fact that Mally was not a particularly original or insightful thinker on business barely factored into it. In the end, though, this content marketing strategy was to be Mally's undoing. Mally used to argue that the right strategy for his organisation was to promote a personality as the face of accounting and that he should be that person. These days, you have to accept that the future of the business rests in the next generation and they use multiple ways to communicate, he told the Australian Financial Review. 
I'm a former teacher, so I know that people often relate to the person and not always to the business or the brand, and the profession is known to be quite impersonal at times. Aston's initial February 2016 column turned out to be the beginning of a campaign, with a string of articles following over the next 16 months as more details were smoked out. Questionable governance in CPA was laid bare, and members began to ask hard questions about the undisclosed salaries of Mali and the board directors. The organisation fought an increasingly desperate rearguard action, removing member email addresses from its website in what looked like an attempt to prevent them talking to each other to organise against Mali's board. And in March 2017, CPA controversially decided to hold its annual general meeting in Singapore. It claimed it was to recognise overseas members, but it looked like a dodge to avoid difficult local questions by making it hard for Australian members to attend. At the same time, CPA sent a lengthy document to members, implausibly claiming the content marketing was useful because the middle-aged Mali could be built up as an inspirational figure for new members, primarily in the youth market. When the Singapore Annual General Meeting came along in April, Chairman Tyrone Carlin refused to reveal Mali's salary, which attracted fresh criticism from members. Finally, at the end of May 2017, the dam began to crack. Carlin disclosed to the Australian Financial Review that Mali's salary was an unusually large $1.79 million, not far off the remuneration of somebody leading an ASX 100 company, rather than a mid-sized industry association. Carlin also announced that he was resigning in the spirit of renewal, but Mali ignored calls from members for him to go too. Over the next fortnight, seven CPA directors, more than half of the board, resigned, but Mali still clung on. He was finally sacked on the 23rd of June 2017 with a $4.9 million golden parachute, representing three years of his base salary. Mali would defend the content marketing strategy until the end. When the CPA commissioned a report into the affair after his departure, it concluded that the $6 million spent on promoting his book and TV show had been essentially lost once he departed. Yet Mally still insisted to the Australian Financial Review. Member research always spoke about three things, brand, knowledge and advocacy. All of those went north and they'll continue to go north. At the end of the affair, Aston wrote... Alex Malley caught our attention, as he did yours, by his own extravagant efforts to do so. The billboards, the TV ads, the schmoozing at Sydney's power diners, the pointy end flying, the hackneyed rags to riches shtick, the ludicrous motivational guff and, in person, the genuinely comical egomania. Like so many others... I was amused and mystified. Who was this relative nobody so brazenly on the make? Who was paying for all of it? And what the hell did it have to do with accounting? It was Australia's biggest ever content marketing experiment. 
and it failed. The crown that slipped. Of all the companies caught out by the content marketing bubble, Icentia suffered the most. When it bought King Content in August 2015, Icentia was worth nearly $700 million and looked likely to go all the way to $1 billion. By the end of 2020, it was worth just $23 million. Icentia wanted to grow from its roots as a media monitoring company. Most of its revenue came from helping brands and government departments keep up with what the media was saying about them. The company enjoyed a near monopoly on media monitoring and was running out of any more room to grow within its niche. CEO John Kroll wanted to widen what it did. The rationale for Icentia to go after King Content made sense, even if the $36 million price tag seemed a bit steep. Most of Icentia's clients worked in the PR and communications teams at the government departments and companies it serviced. Kroll knew that companies' marketing departments tended to have bigger budgets than their PR counterparts. Owning a content marketing play like King Content would be a door to conversations with marketers. There were three ways for marketers to get their brand placed in the media, earned, paid and owned. Earned was another way of saying PR, traditional public relations driven news coverage that might have been generated by sending out a press release. Paid media was traditional advertising and owned media was this new branded content space where brands created their own stories. On the day of the purchase, Kroll told me, for quite some time now, Icentia has been looking at how we can work across owned, earned and paid media. Our clients are already getting a lot of information from us in this space, but they are also asking us to help with their strategy. King Content and the market leader. That was true, and King Content founder Craig Hodges had worked hard to ensure his agency was perceived as market leader, and even harder at building up an impressive pipeline of clients. Initially, the acquisition appeared to go okay. Over the next four months, Icentia's share price ramped up another 40%, peaking at $4.93 in December 2015, giving it a market capitalisation tantalisingly close to $1 billion. In February 2016, Icentia told the market that profits were up by 22% and King Content's own growth was up by 32% on the previous six months. And even in August 2016, when Icentia revealed its results for the financial year, Kroll was able to tell the market that King Content's revenue had performed well ahead of our expectations. Soon though, an unseemly three months after the bullish update, Kroll had to give some bad news to the company's annual general meeting. There'd been a loss of momentum. There had been poor decision-making around strategy, new business development and client retention, he said. In other words, the wheels had come off the King Content acquisition. The company's content marketing division was going to actually lose the company $2 million in the first half of the financial year now underway. And King Content founder Craig Hodges 
was being nudged to the sidelines with the polite new job title of executive chairman. Icentia would look for a new boss for King Content to rescue the situation. The Icentia share price plummeted 26%. In January 2017, Icentia named Matthew Stanton, former CEO of Bauer, as the new King Content CEO. And once Stanton got to look up close, there was more bad news. A month later, Icentia had to admit that King Content was going to lose not $2 million, but $3 million for the financial year. It was an extraordinarily bad situation. It wasn't uncommon for an acquisition to miss an over-optimistic profit target, but for it to immediately start losing money was something else entirely. Soon, Hodges was out of the building altogether. It was time to give the market some accountability. In March, the company announced the resignation of Chief Financial Officer Namesh Shah, who had led the company's acquisition strategy alongside Crow. The shares fell again, hitting a new low of $1.33 in April 2017. So what had gone wrong? In major part, it was the way King Content had been built by Hodges. The company prioritised its sales efforts over its execution. There were lots of great salespeople ready to tell new clients about the wonders King Content would be able to work for their brand if they only jumped into content marketing. But the talented in-house journalists capable of then creating the content were thinner on the ground. One insider would later tell Mumbrella, I don't know of any agency that weighted itself in a sales structure quite as heavily as King Content. It was sell, sell, sell without the rigour and structure and process to deliver against that. That's not to say they didn't produce good work, but generally as it grew, it was maybe selling beyond its capability, which is why clients drifted away. Another reason clients drifted away was a function of the development of the content marketing industry. Those who brought in King Content as a means of dipping their toes in the water might then hire their own in-house journalist if it worked. And that would then mean the loss of the client to the agency. And those who didn't get a good result would have no reason to stick around either. Crow would later tell Mumbrella that a lack of long-term contracts was one of the problems. Because the market was growing so quickly, King Content felt, we'll find more clients. But they became dependent on a couple of very large clients, Kroll said. There wasn't a problem in how we served clients, but a number of them moved their content in-house. Another issue was pricing. At a time when the best freelancers looked to be paid $1 per word, King Content offered as little as 15 cents. It was hard to get good writers at that price. Poor quality output was another reason for clients to move on. Stanton was unable to turn things around. In August 2017, Icentia axed the King Content brand and told the market that it had written off the $37.8 million that the acquisition had eventually cost the company. But Icentia would integrate content marketing into its services. It also told the market that profits would be down and that in the end, King Content had lost 
not the $2 million or $3 million previously predicted, but $4.4 million for the financial year just gone. The share price plunged yet again, this time down by 46% in a day to a share price of exactly $1. Two months later, I sent you told the market it was getting out of content marketing altogether. Our decision regarding King Content has been resolved and management will ensure a smooth and orderly transition for clients and employees, Kroll said in a statement to the ASX. The investment left Kroll fighting for his job. During the investor call after the announcement, he was asked to justify his position. He responded, I've been the CEO since 1999 and I grew this business to be pretty much the leading media intelligence business on a global scale. Pretty much the business that everyone came to have a look at to see what is the strategy and where we are moving forward. He conceded, definitely the execution on King Content was a mistake, but as we focus on the core media intelligence business, I'm one of the key guys in the industry who people look at and say, He's a leader and understands where the business goes. But even Isentia's decision to stick to its knitting wasn't particularly welcomed by the market and the share price trended downwards again. In the next market update, in February 2018, Crow had another ASX announcement. After almost 20 years as CEO, I believe it is time for a change. The market cap was now only just above $200 million dollars. He never did get to see Icentia as a billion-dollar company. Five become three. In the outdoor advertising industry, decades of consolidation were coming to a head. Now that O-Media had snapped up I in 10's 2012 fire sale, there were just five key players. There was large format specialist O-Media, which had been bought by Champ Private Equity in February 2012. Since buying I, O-Media was now the owner of one of the most high-impact advertising sites in the country, on the side of Glebe Island silos next to Sydney's Anzac Bridge. Industry metric Move calculated that the site received 1.2 million viewers per month. The move rules meant that they weren't allowed to claim that it was the most viewed billboard in the country, but they were happy to imply it. It was even bigger than it looked. A few months before, I had taken a group of trade press journalists to the top of the silo to view the site at close hand. Not for those with vertigo, the gantry walk took us three minutes from one end of the giant billboard site to the other. Then there was APN Outdoor, which also competed around large formats, its flagship being its new digital billboard over the entry road at Sydney Domestic Airport. APN News and Media now owned only half of APN Outdoor, having sold the other half to private equity firm Quadrum. And APN News and Media had a second dog in the race, in the street furniture segment of Outdoor bus shelters and the like, with its 50% ownership of Adshell. The other half was owned by giant US media conglomerate Clear Channel. Adshell owned 22,000 outdoor panels, mainly in Australia's big cities. The new gatecrasher was QMS Media, which had only launched in 2010, 
with founder Barclay Nettlefold, helping Qatar Media, owned by Qatar Development Bank, get a foothold in outdoor media across Australia and Southeast Asia. As well as large format digital billboards, QMS was big in sports stadiums. The fifth player was another overseas company, the French-owned JC Decaux, one of the biggest global outdoor advertising firms. By far the most important part of JC Decaux's portfolio was its City of Sydney street furniture contract, which it had won in 1997 in time for the Sydney Olympics. Its flagship was the impossible-to-miss run of bus stop billboards on York Street in the Sydney CBD. There was to be a frantic period of deal-making that would remake the outdoor space. Quadrant kicked it off in October 2013, buying the other half of APN Outdoor from APN News and Media for a bargain $69 million, nearly two years after buying the first half for $190 million. Now, confusingly, there'd be two companies in the media industry sharing the name APN, despite no longer having an ownership connection to each other. The financial people had their eyes on the exit. The rise of digital billboards and the ability to sell much more inventory was bringing more money into the sector. And the financial markets had finally recovered from the GFC. So it was time to start floating stuff on the ASX. APN Outdoor was first out of the traps, with Quadrant selling all but 20% of its stake into an ASX float in October 2014. It gave the company a market capitalization of $425 million, a nice return for Quadrant. O-Media wasn't far behind, floating a month later, with the company valued at nearly $290 million. Again, it was a strong result for Champ Private Equity, which had bought the company in December 2011 for $163 million. To wrap things up, QMS floated in June 2015 with a market capitalization of $180 million. There was more deal-making to be done. In October 2016, a year after replacing Michael Miller at the helm of APN News & Media, new CEO Kieran Davis announced that the company was buying out Clear Channel from the joint ownership of AdShell for $268.4 million. But these were just the entrees. The market was about to see a blockbuster deal land on the table. In December 2016, APN Outdoor and O Media announced that they had agreed to merge. With APN Outdoor's market capitalization sitting at $900 million and O Media at $714 million, the resulting $1.6 billion company would be among the biggest media organisations in Australia. The new company would control more than half of the outdoor advertising market. As is usual with mergers, it wasn't entirely a merger of equals. APN Outdoor shareholders would get 55% of the new company, and O Media shareholders the other 45 But one of the things that made it look less like a complete takeover, was the plan for the board to consist of four directors from each company, and for O Media founder and CEO Brendan Cook to run the new business, while APN Outdoors chairman Doug Flynn chaired the merged board. Doug Flynn was big on media boards. 
He'd stepped down from the Seven West Media Board in 2014 and had been chairman of Icentia since 2014 as well. Earlier in Flynn's career, he'd been global CEO of media buying giant Aegis and managing director of News Corp's UK operation. He'd been the one to make the call to close the Today newspaper. The plan was that Richard Herring, CEO of APN, would retire once the merger was done, so there would be no squabble between him and Cook about who would run the joint. O-Media chairman Michael Anderson told the ASX, The combination of these businesses will create an attractive media offering, supported by a passionate and experienced team. Unsurprisingly, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission decided to take a look, concerned that the deal might reduce competition. The issue would not just be one of how much a new outdoor giant could get away with charging to run ads, but also the fact that there'd be less competition when tendering for the right to operate billboard sites in the first place. The ACCC's deliberations dragged well into 2017, and it scrutinised more than 30 submissions many against the deal. How it looked at the merger would be a major test. Would it look at the competitive landscape of the outdoor advertising sector only, or the whole media landscape? In May, the ACCC signalled that it was doubtful about the deal. ACCC chairman Rod Sims told Mumbrella, Our view is that the out-of-home market, and I guess the advertising market more generally, will be more competitive with having these two players remaining separate. The ACCC promised to give a final verdict on the 6th of July. Having already been in limbo for six months, O-Media and APN Outdoor decided to pull the plug rather than wait and potentially have to fight to overturn a decision that went against them. Cook told Mumbrella, I decided that if we're going to have to spend the next six to 12 months of my life educating the ACCC, I would rather spend six to 12 months of my life growing the business. The two companies went back to being rivals instead. At APN Outdoor, Herring decided to retire anyway. The move was to open a door for the continuing rehabilitation of James Warburton. He joined as CEO in January 2018. Warburton's messy exit from Seven and sacking by the board of Network 10 back in 2013 had put a blot on his otherwise impressive career resume. He was hungry for his next job and had not enjoyed one aspect of his high-profile departure from 10. Knowing what fellow parents at his son's school were thinking during his brief period of unemployment. The one thing I hated was when they give you pity and you want to say fuck off. In May 2013, he'd taken the CEO role at V8 Supercars. It was a chance to show his skills. Before the end of his first year, he negotiated a decent six-year TV rights deal with 10 and Fox Sports, worth $241 million. It was also a chance to work with a private equity company, with supercars majority owned by Archer Capital. I really enjoyed it, and I learned a bit, recalls Warburton. Now, though, APN Outdoor represented an opportunity for Warburton to show the world that he could cut it as a media company CEO after all. He wasn't entirely an outdoor industry novice. His sale of I to O Media 
while he was at 10, had given him insights into the dynamics of the market. And in his media agency days running Universal McCann, he'd been on the other side of the trading relationship. I thought it was a fantastic opportunity, says Warburton. I thought the outdoor industry was far too insular and this was a chance to get amongst it. It was a big opportunity. However, it would be another surprisingly short stint at the helm for Warburton, although this time the outcome would be a lot better. In 2018, there was some serious polyamory going on in the outdoor space. If AP and Outdoor and O Media could not be together, then they would both look for other partners. O Media kicked it off in April, trying to buy Adshell. Initially, the size of the offer, which wasn't revealed, was too low. But then in May, O upped the offer to $470 million. Warburton's APN Outdoor decided to get in on the action, offering $500 million, and then increased the bid to $540 million in a mixture of cash and shares. What went unreported at the time was that APN Outdoor was also trying to buy QMS. Then things became seriously complicated. JC Decoe piled in, offering to buy APN Outdoor for $1.1 billion. Suddenly, APN Outdoor was both hunter and prey. In a statement released on the 20th of June, JC Decoe said, APN Outdoor will be complementary to JC Decoe's existing out-of-home media assets in Australia, which are primarily street furniture segment. JC Decoe is one of the leading street furniture players in the Australian market, having recently won the advertising rights for Yarra Trams in Melbourne and Telstra under long-term contracts. Crucially, JC Decoe was also preparing to defend its long-term City of Sydney contract, the biggest of its type in the country, which had just been announced for tender. The APN board put out a holding statement, neither accepting nor rejecting the offer. Three days later, O Media won the bidding war for Adshell, topping APN Outdoors' bid with an offer of $570 million. The deal would make O Media Australia's biggest outdoor company. The frenzy wasn't quite over. The month that reshaped Australia's outdoor advertising market concluded with a slightly increased offer from JC Decoe for APN Outdoor, enough to get it across the line. The bid of $1.119 billion was accepted. Considering APN Outdoor had floated with a market capitalisation of $425 million in 2014, it was a spectacular result. When the deal completed in October, with the APN Outdoor brand being folded into JC Decoe, there was no role for Warburton. He was philosophical, telling Mumbrella, Outdoor was going to be such a good opportunity, which obviously it proved to be. Obviously it's a bit quicker than I would have liked, I would have liked to have run it for a few more years. It only took him 10 months, but his media rehabilitation was now complete. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade you can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. 
Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in Northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.